0: Somewhere in what is today Mexico, about 9,000 years ago, a group of people domesticated a local plant, possibly in the highlands, possibly elsewhere, but then shortly thereafter, spread To the highlands and that plant had little starchy seed pods that humans could eat some research has suggested that this happened many times throughout the region this little plant which is today called maize was obviously awesome enough that a bunch of different groups of humans realized it might be beneficial to plant more of it near their settlements rather than relying on naturally occurring plants to sustain them And then, over time, they took good care of these plants and bred them for larger, sweeter, more nutrition-rich seed pods, alongside other changes that were beneficial for those wishing to continue using them as a food source. More recent research, and this seems to be the dominant theory at the moment, suggests that this cultivation happened in one area and then spread outward from that area which makes sense as the trade networks through this region have always been pretty solid, and the locals are renowned, even way back then, for their agricultural capabilities, building sophisticated irrigation infrastructure, even in terrain, that seems unlikely to be able to sustain such things. Whatever the specifics, archaeological evidence shows that maize, which is more commonly called corn in English-speaking parts of the world, was cultivated and nudged into a boggling array of shapes and sizes and colors and types, and became what's called a staple food, basically a food that serves as the foundation for a group of people's diet throughout the Americas. When Europeans started showing up in the Americas, killing and plundering and enslaving everybody, beginning at the tail end of the 15th century, they also adopted the consumption and cultivation of maize. There's some written evidence that they were hesitant about this at first, in part because their Christian beliefs indicated that only bread made from wheat could transubstantiate into the body of Christ for religious purposes, and in part because of their familiarity with wheat from back home Corn seemed less appealing as a staple food than that more familiar wheat. The same was true of potatoes and cassava, which were a few other staple foods they were encountering during their colonization efforts. But despite their hesitancy, we know they grew corn to feed themselves as they spread around the Americas and neighboring regions, and we know they shipped corn back home to be grown and traded which is what made maize go international for, as far as we know at least, the first time, at least on the scale, where it would be something other than a strange exotic curiosity. The wheat that Europeans loved so much was initially cultivated, as far as we can tell at least, a few thousand years before corn, in the fertile crescent region that makes up the land bridge between Africa and Eurasia. So, roughly, contemporary Libya and Egypt, up to Turkey and over to Iraq, with Israel and Lebanon and Syria and Jordan, among others in between. That's the region we're talking about here. And at this point in history, around 9600 BC, this portion of what is today often called the Middle East was just a really great place to be if you were human, in terms of the plants and animals available to hunt and forage, and in terms of the climate and soil, which was just really wonderful, especially compared to other surrounding regions where humans had expanded by this point. It was especially great for plucking some of these local plants replanting them near their settlements, and slowly but surely whittling away the inconvenient bits and replacing them with more beneficial traits, like bigger, more nutritious, easier-to-harvest seed kernels. This region is also considered to be the cradle of human civilization, which means, in essence, it's where we started to develop agriculture, the domestication of plants, and the scaling up of our planting and harvesting of them which in turn allowed us to start making more food for more people, expanding our population, and importantly, specializing. Basically, being able to have people who do things other than gather food all day, which until this point in history wasn't really an option. Other foods were also hunted and scavenged and produced, but wheat was the staple crop that pulled it all together and became the foundation of the local diet. And that foundation was sturdy because wheat was dietarily substantial enough to allow these burgeoning civilizations to get pretty big. We eventually saw those massive and wealthy and powerful European colonial powers come of age just to the west of here, using the same basic civilizational building blocks to get where they got. But earlier on, this region hosted the Mesopotamian, Sumerian, Assyrian, and Babylonian cultures, which were followed by the Greeks. And pharaonic ancient Egyptian cultures, the cultures of ancient India, and further east, ancient China. Though, if you go far enough in that direction, you find less reliance on wheat and the bundle of technologies and cultural norms associated with it, and begin to see a civilizational reliance on another staple crop, rice. Fundamentally, then, human culture and civilization around the world. Has always, post agriculture at least, been predicated on staple crops. And as those crops have spread, so have aspects of the culture from which they originated. But this spread has also resulted in a remixing and revising of these crops and the tangle and swirl of technology and folkways and traditions associated with them. What I'd like to talk about today is staple foods in a globalized world and how a shortage of two such foods, wheat and corn, may ripple across the global economy over the next few years. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from the Associated Press, and it's entitled Russian War in Worlds Breadbasket Threatens Food Supply. The term breadbasket is typically applied to regions that are specially productive for agricultural purposes because of their soil, their climate, or some other variable that has lent them superpowers when it comes to producing staple crops especially wheat, but also other grains, though generally this kind of region is called a rice bowl instead of a bread basket when the local staple crop is rice. And occasionally, marketers wanting to fluff up the reputation of a region's agricultural industry will riff on this concept, calling their area the salad bowl or something similar, though in many of those latter cases it is mostly marketing despite the areas probably being at least okay for whatever it is they're producing. This piece is about a region generally considered to be a global breadbasket, so rather than serving as the source of a great deal of staple foods for a region, as is the case with most breadbaskets or rice bowls around the world, the Black Sea region of Ukraine is considered to be vital to the dietary well-being of huge portions of the planet, especially for folks living in Europe, Asia, and Africa. The ongoing, as of the day I'm recording this at least, conflict in Ukraine, which was sparked by an unprovoked invasion by Russia, seemingly intended to decapitate Ukrainian leadership and bring the country back into Russia's political, military, and economic sphere of influence, as was the case under the Russian precursor nation, the Soviet Union, This ongoing conflict has led to a severe diminishment of production within Ukraine, as one would expect in a country that is being bombarded by artillery and aircraft and invaded by something like 200,000 troops. As a consequence of this invasion, Russia is now finding itself on the pointy end of a slew of severe economic sanctions leveled by the European Union, United Kingdom, and United States, among other nations which in aggregate account for a whole lot of the world's total economic activity. So these sanctions, although not at all the same thing as sending in troops and military hardware to defend Ukraine against this incursion, are meant to do a lot of damage to Russia in order to get them to pull back. Maybe to get the local wealthy and powerful elite called the oligarchs to turn on Russian President Putin, and if nothing else, to disincentivize other nations that might have designs on their neighbors, like China toward Taiwan, which it considers to be a breakaway region of its own territory. So, this is meant to show them what they might expect if they decide to turn a cold standoff into an actual shooting conflict beyond mere military support. Those sanctions, though, are in some ways making the larger global economic consequences of this conflict all the more stark and impactful. Because although Ukraine contains a global breadbasket region, so does Russia. And between them, they supply 25.4% of the world's total wheat exports which in practice means nations that import wheat, which is a lot of them, get about a quarter of that wheat from these two countries. This is especially horrible news for countries like Egypt, which are highly reliant on shipments of wheat from these two countries. Egyptians have a type of flatbread made from wheat as a foundational element of their diet. It's so foundational, in fact, that the government subsidizes its production and sale so their citizens can always have it, and plenty of it, at a very low cost. The Egyptian government had already announced before the invasion that they would need to raise the price of this flatbread to account for increased wheat prices that had climbed 80% between April 2020 and December 2021, due in large part to supply chain issues and prolonged drought in breadbasket regions, including Russia and Ukraine. More recent word is that the Egyptian government is now concerned about civil unrest, because the country has a history of such unrest occurring in the wake of economic issues punctuated by unaffordable food prices, in particular price upticks on this staple dish. The local flatbread that people expect to be incredibly cheap but which is set to increase in price even further in the near future other north african and middle eastern countries are preparing for similar issues yemen imports essentially all of its wheat and about a third of those imports come from ukraine and russia about half of its citizens daily caloric intake is from wheat based bread And as the country is embroiled in a long-running war, which started back in 2014, keeping people fed remains a persistent issue that could get worse as supplies dry up and prices rise because of that finitude. About 8 million children are reportedly already on the brink of famine in Yemen, and to lose access to a staple food like wheat could push some of those people and entire regions over the edge. In Tunisia, the government is being careful not to say anything about widely reported upon flour shortages, but rationing has already begun at street level, and bakery owners are reporting that reimbursements from the government, which they typically receive after reporting their flour purchases, haven't been forthcoming for nearly a year. In the US, this existing shortage and price inflation is being seen as a food security issue, not just a humanitarian one. People can cope with a lot of hardships, even to the point where their quality of life begins to shrivel and change as prices on all sorts of things skyrocket. But when food supplies diminish and folks begin to think they won't be able to feed themselves and their families, that's when you start to see riots, uprisings, and revolutions Which, although can sometimes eventually lead to positive outcomes, still tend to be incredibly dangerous and uncomfortable for everyone involved in the moment, and can lead to a lot of long-term uncertainty globally, and governments and their militaries do not like uncertainty. It's estimated by the U.S. Department of Agriculture that wheat exports from Russia and Ukraine will be down 12% for the current marketing year, which began in June. And that's based on the premise that Australia is having a record harvest this year, and some of the shortfall from the war will be made up by India, which has been producing bumper crops and shipping more of its excess overseas to build out its wheat-export relationships. The U.S. also expects American shipments to be higher this year, compared to last year's drought-hindered, lowest-in-a-century growing season. It'll still be lower than usual due to an ongoing drought in the western and northern plains regions, but not nearly as bad as last year's abysmal turnout. The current state of affairs for the global wheat industry then was already very bad for those buying wheat, even before this invasion which is taking place in a global breadbasket area and which has led to economic sanctions on a country containing another breadbasket area. The price tag inflation on this staple food, then, will almost certainly only go up, in part because of the reality of that shortage, but also because of the anticipation of future shortages. The planting season for these Ukrainian and Russian breadbaskets start in just a few weeks, and if these farmers are not able to get out and sow their fields because they're under attack, because they're being paralyzed by sanctions, or because they've been conscripted or otherwise compelled to fight, That's a huge chunk of the global market for wheat that will just not be there next year. And that means all the shortfalls and price bumps we're seeing now will likely seem insignificant compared to what next year brings. And the markets are already beginning to price that future possibility into today's shipments. Ukraine's breadbasket region is also vital to the world's corn supply. It's estimated that Ukraine produces about 17% of global corn exports, the fourth largest corn producer on the planet. Like wheat, corn is a staple food and is thus vital for the dietary well being of huge chunks of the global human population. Japan, Mexico, and China, followed by South Korea, Egypt, and Spain, are the world's largest corn importers. So while corn is dietarily important, Corn exports are not considered to be as foundational to regional stability as wheat. It's mostly medium wealthy and very wealthy countries importing this staple, compared to primarily lower income countries importing wheat. That said, corn is more fundamental to more industries than wheat, finding its way into everything from cooking oils to animal feed to industrial products like soap, polishes, batteries, and dyes to fuel for cars. The ethanol, that's either used straight or added to other gasoline types, is made from corn. And it's honestly difficult to find a processed food that doesn't use some kind of corn-derived product, especially corn syrup, which is in pretty much everything you might buy prepackaged at the grocery store or at a fast food joint. And that's part of the larger issue here. Because while there will almost certainly be inflationary effects on food, and we've seen a bunch of inflation on food already because of pandemic-related supply chains and production issues over the past two years, but this is in addition to that, we will also likely be seeing secondary inflationary effects on these staples because they're so vital to so many regions and industries. It's a bit like how the price of gas, of petrol, of jet fuel, of ship fuel, can reverberate outward to influence everything else on the market. Because fuel allows us to make and move things from place to place. And there isn't a whole lot of commerce that can be conducted without using at least some fuel. Consequently, as fuel prices go up, so do the prices of most other things, and as those other things see their prices go up, the secondary products and services that rely on those things also experience price inflation. If you're buying disposable cups and napkins for your restaurant, as the prices on these fundamentals go up, because the prices on the things that are used to make them went up, the prices on the food you serve will also probably have to go up to account for that additional expense. And that same sequence of inflationary effects is playing out here already and will likely expand and inflate still further as the consequences of this invasion of Ukraine by Russia are measured and processed and incorporated into next year's economic data. This is already happening, but this is still such a recent thing with so many moving parts and unknowns that we're juggling a lot of made-up numbers at the moment, and the reality of the situation hasn't really landed yet. And as it does, we will likely see the consequences of those numbers ripple outward to encompass even seemingly disconnected portions of the economy. Because these crops, wheat and corn, but also other things produced locally like oil seeds and neon, which is a gas used in the production of semiconductors, of microchips, are so interconnected with so many other things. One more point worth making here is that this situation is not unique to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. In a globalized economy where everything is integrated and interwoven with all the other things, we'll tend to see reverberations of this kind any there is a real-deal conflict of this sort anywhere. The severity of those consequences will vary based on the country, what it makes and consumes, and how well integrated it is with the rest of the world. But what we're seeing is both one of the downsides of globalization, in that these consequences are felt by all. And one of the debatable upsides, which is basically that such invasions have a natural disincentive attached to them. There are so many downsides for so many people and governments when anyone invades anyone else that the world is arguably safer and less violent on average today because it's just a lot more beneficial to trade and keep conflicts confined to the economic realm because of how thoroughly tied together we've all become. The book I'd like to recommend today is called The Star Builders, Nuclear Fusion and the Race to Power the Planet by Arthur Terrell. Nuclear fusion is a source of immense optimism for me personally and that's partially just the concept itself has always seemed like a very good idea to me but also because of where we are at now with the state of the art technology that's being utilized and the timeline that if everything goes well with the way things are developing is looking pretty good for humanity and our hopefully near future ability to produce a theoretically infinite amount of energy with very few negative side effects, and nothing at the scale of the side effects we have today for our major sources of power. Now because nuclear fusion has been 10 or 20 years away for the past 50 years or so, a lot of the changes in this space will not necessarily be evident or legible to everyone. And that's part of why this book is such a good resource for that. It goes through what's been happening in this space and touches on a lot of the variables, the things that have changed over the past 20 years or so in particular, that are causing people to be optimistic about it again. And I should note, there's actually been a whole lot that has happened since this book came out. It seems like every other week that we're seeing new milestones in this space. But if you want to build out a baseline of knowledge about this subject to start out with and know a bit about the earlier and more recent history of the space and the technology, this is a really great place to start. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Star Builders by Arthur Terrell. You can find out more about me and my work at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find a collection of my other projects, including my other podcasts, at understandery.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.